welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Matthew chapter 19 today, if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn there. I, I guess before I start, I should, uh, I should go ahead and issue an apology. It, it wasn't until Monday, looking back at our message last week, that I realized I kept y'all five minutes too long last week. And, you know, as Baptists, we have this deep doctrinal belief that we should be the first people at the restaurants. And so I, I just really want to apologize to you for, for breaking our doctrinal statements there and keeping us a little late. And so I think the right thing to do would be preach uh, five minutes shorter today, but I probably can't do that either. So, but anyway, I'm sorry about that. Uh, Matthew chapter 19 today, you know, I was thinking earlier, I was thinking about what is it about Sunday morning that is so exciting? What, what is it about being here that just brings so much joy to us? And, and, and I realize what it is, is, is that in this place, we're protected from the outside world. And I don't mean that like these walls do something to protect us, but, but just being together with other Christians and, and other believers, isn't this a positive place to be on a Sunday morning? Like, like we, we just get to be here and everybody's smiling and everybody's exciting and everybody just loves each other. And we're so protected from the rest of the world. And once you walk out those doors, it's, it's not like that. You walk out those doors and you turn your TV or your radio on and, and all you hear is, is negative and, and bad and politics and anger and in and, and this place we don't deal with that. And that's, that's what I love about being here. You know, when I'm not here and I see good news, it always catches my attention because outside of here, there, there's not very much good news. Outside of the gospel, there's not a lot of good news. But I saw something this week I wanted to share with you. You guys may have, have seen this already. A young man in Atlanta named Dalton, he, he found a girlfriend and, and he thought she was pretty and they fell in love and he decided he wanted to get married and I wasn't there to talk him out of it so he went to buy an engagement ring and, and he went to this, to this jewelry store in Atlanta, it was a Zales, I don't know if that matters, maybe they'll pay me for saying that in a sermon. It was a Zales and he went there and he picked out this perfect engagement ring. The only problem was is he loved his, his girlfriend just a little bit more than that particular uh, store would, you know, let him have a ring for. So he, he was talking with the cashier. He's like, hey, I, I can't afford all this right now. Is there a payment plan? Do you guys hang on to the ring? And he was having all this discussion about how is he going to pay this giant expensive ring off? And, and in walks this man who, who quickly became his friend. Have y'all seen this story? Uh, RB, pull up that picture. See if you guys recognize his new friend here. You guys know who that is? He's wearing a mask, but it's hard to miss that stature. That is Shaquille O'Neal, a basketball player that made himself famous for playing for the Chicago Bulls. And see, now I had to see if you guys were awake because everybody knows Shaquille O'Neal did not play for the Chicago Bulls. He played for the New York Knicks. Anyway, so Shaquille O'Neal walks in and he, and he sees this guy. He's having this struggle and, and trying to figure out how to pay for this ring. And, and all of a sudden, he just he has this moment of generosity up in him. And he just walks by and he hands his credit card over to the cashier. He says, pay for that man's ring. Let him take it home. Let him propose to his girlfriend. Let, let him get engaged. And, and come to find out, Shaquille O'Neal does this quite often. He was asked about this later because it was captured on video. And, and Shaq said, you know, for me, that's, that's not a lot of money. You know, for that young man, he works hard. That was a lot of money. For me, I'm an NBA superstar. I, it was no, no big deal. And come to find out, if you research Shaq a little bit, he does this a lot. He, he loves to go places and just do for people and pay, and pay these big expenses for people because he's got the money easily accessible to him. And as I was thinking about that, it's like, what causes Shaq 
to find joy in being that generous? What causes him to, to want to do that for people? Why, why would he take his money that he's earned that he could spend on himself and, and give it away, not just give it away, but give it away to strangers? And here's what I thought is every human, every last one of us is made in the perfect image of God. And not that we are God, we absolutely are not, but, but we have parts of, of God's character in us. Before Adam and Eve messed it up, we had a lot of God's emotional being in us. Our ability to love, you know where that comes from? It comes from God's ability to love. And the thing that makes us feel good when we are generous with others, the things that, the, that makes us feel like that's something that we want to do, that's part of God still in us. That's a part of God's character that's been carried over to us. Whether we're Christians or not, doesn't it feel good when you buy something for somebody at Christmas or their birthday and you just can't, you can't wait for them to open it? That's how God feels about you and me. And so, as we look at today, I just want to focus on the, genero the generosity of God and how he loves to give to us. A couple weeks ago, we started a series called Oxymoronic Faith, and, and we're looking at things that don't quite go together, things that don't match, and, and how our faith is, by definition, oxymoronic. If you, if you compare God's love and our unworthiness, his generosity to us, those things don't go together. And last week, we looked at this concept through the, through the lens of who did Jesus call to be his followers? Who did he call to be his apostles and to be his, his 12? And, and what we realize is that Jesus went to the outcasts. Jesus went to the nobodies. Jesus didn't go and pick the L.A. Lakers. See, I did know. You guys were wondering if I really knew about Shaq and the L.A. Lakers. Jesus didn't pick the L.A. Lakers to be his A-team. He went down to Southside and picked the little dribblers to come be the guys that are going to be his disciples. And we see that those things don't match. And if you continue reading in the scriptures and you read about Jesus and his relationship with these men, is, is he slowly putting them through this process of being shaped and, and being formed and, and changing them and training them and what it means to have a faith, a, a faith that doesn't quite go together. And one of Jesus' teachings that comes up several times in different instances is, is he'll say things to his disciples as like, well, those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. Like, if that's not an oxymoron, I don't know what it is. That, that's an odd, it's like a riddle. Like, what does that even mean that the first will be last and last will be first? Must be like golf. Like, golf is the only sport that I know of that you win by losing, by having the lowest score. What does Jesus mean when he says the last will be first and the first will be last? Well, we're going to track that down today through one of the instances that he brought this up in Matthew 19. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're, we're going to read verses 16 through 20. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, this is coming to Jesus, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt not commit murder, thou, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man say, saith unto him, All these things I have kept from my youth, youth up, what lack I yet? 
So Jesus is walking in, and this is what we call Jesus's earthly ministry. About three years, when Jesus turned roughly about 30, he, he collects these disciples, and he begins walking around, and he begins teaching this new style of faith. He begins taking people from Judaism, and he's establishing what it looks like to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. And he says a lot of things that are countercultural. He says things like, um, I am God and I have the power to forgive sins. He, he says things like, if you're not first, you're last. Or I'm sorry, uh, things like those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. And he teaches humility in a place that was full of pride. And as Jesus is talking and teaching and healing people, he gathers a lot of attention. And, and people come to this belief that this, this guy is a prophet. He's special. And some come to that faith that they realize this is the son of God of God. And this, this young man that walks up to him here, Mark calls him the rich young ruler. Matthew doesn't record that, but many know him as the rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus and he asks this question. He knows that Jesus has the answer. He says, what must I do to get eternal life? What, what can I do to be one of your disciples? How do I get this, this everlasting life that you keep talking to everybody else about? But I want you to look at his wording. His wording is, is really important in how he says this. He says, what good thing must I do. Now, he's got his understanding of who Jesus is just a little bit backwards here. What good thing must I do? The answer to his question is standing in front of him, and yet he still tends to look at himself. Isn't, isn't that our natural reaction when we come upon a question or a problem as we begin to look inward, we begin to look at ourselves? You know what the biggest part of any bookstore is? is? Is the self-help section. Like, how do I help myself? What can I do to change me? What can I do to fix this problem in my life? And that's what we tend to do is we look at ourselves and say, what can I do? And at its base, we may tell ourselves that that's humility, that it's humility to look at ourselves and say, well, I can grow and I can be better. But, but in the instance of this man and in so many of our lives, that's, that's actually pride coming up. When we look at ourselves and say, what can I do? Because that assumes that we have the power to change things. Here's a, here's a quick definition of the word pride. Anything that works with the word I. Anytime that we say I or me or even we, that's pride speaking. Because in our faith, in our oxymoronic faith, it's not about you and it's not about me. And it's not about what we can or can't do. It's about what Jesus Christ can do and what he has done for us. Our first take-home truth is this, is that we naturally look inward at our own abilities instead of looking at God's. And, and there's some that are sitting here today, and, and you may be facing some questions in your life. Like you, you've got some problems at work, or, or you're wondering what this Christianity thing is about, or you're wondering what faith is about, or how to get that eternal life, and, and you've got the same problem that this rich young ruler had. The answer's right in front of you. The answer is the reason we came to worship today. But somehow we still keep looking at ourselves and say, how can I fix it? What can I do? How, how must I earn this? That's what this man come up to Jesus and he's asking. He's, what's the code? There's a line somewhere. How do I cross the line where I know that I have salvation, that I have everlasting life? And, and because his answer was not, or I'm sorry, because his question was not, uh, Jesus, how do I get eternal life? He was focused on himself privately saying, I, because of that, because of that, Jesus gives him an answer. Keep the commandments. If you want to do something for yourself to get yourself eternal life, keep the commandments. That's how you get eternal life. 
And you may be sitting here today and you're going, okay, well, that's, that's the line. There's the answer. But, but the answer here is complicated with Jesus. The answer here is complicated in what he's trying to show this young man. If you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, they're, they're not the only ten rules, but they're, they're ten overarching principles that cover just about everything else that we do. If you can hold all ten of the commandments perfectly, chances are you'll never break another rule ever. But the purpose of what Jesus is telling him here is that this is it's an impossible task. It's not anything that you or I or this young man had the ability to do here. And so Jesus starts to list commandments, and, and I don't know why he did this, but out of the Ten Commandments, six of them specifically deal with how we deal with other people. It's our relationships to other people. The other four are our, is about our relationship with God. And Jesus lists these particular six commandments that deal with people. He said, don't commit mur murder, don't do adultery, don't take things that aren't yours, don't tell lies, honor your father, father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus asked him this question, have you been perfect in these? Have you kept all of these perfectly? Have you, have you ever failed at them? And, and this is how we know that the rich young ruler is dealing with pride. He says, I've always done that. Since I was little, I never dishonored my mother or father. We all know that's untrue because we were all teenagers at one time. I've never stealed, I've, I've stolen, I've never lied. I've never done anything wrong. Yes, I've kept all of these. And we see here that he has a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Ten Commandments are. Because we tend to look at these Ten Commandments as laws of action. Don't break this rule. Don't cross that line. Don't say this thing. Don't do that thing. But when Jesus teaches, Jesus does not teach the Ten Commandments as laws of action. Jesus teaches them as laws of the heart. Two specifics that are listed here, Jesus calls out. He calls out to people and say, oh, you think you've never committed murder? Have you ever been so angry at someone that you've yelled at them? You've committed murder in your heart. Oh, you've never uh, committed adultery. Have you let your eyes wander lustfully? Then you've committed adultery in your heart. See, Jesus has this definition of perfection when it comes to following the Ten Commandments as making sure, making sure that your heart is perfect, not just your actions. So, very simply, obeying a command does not equal having a perfect heart. And because these are laws of the heart, Jesus looks into this man's heart and he sees that his heart's not perfect. Just like mine's not perfect and, and just like your heart's not perfect. Jesus looks into this man's heart and he says, what is, what is the one that he breaks the most? Jesus calls that out starting in verse 21. Jesus said unto him, if that will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me but when the young man heard that saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions so jesus looks down into his heart and he, and he sees the imperfection there is that of these other four commandments jesus could have pulled out he he realizes this man has a problem in his relationship with god and and he doesn't specifically say the word but he calls out an idol in this man's life now, I know what you're thinking. When you think of an idol, you think of a tiki pole in a jungle somewhere where they've carved a face and they've gave it a name and they call it a god. And that's what we think of as an idol. But, but the truth of, of it is, is an idol is anything we worship before God. Anything. Your spouse can be an idol. Our kids can be idols. Our church can be an idol. Anything that we worship before God is an idol. And he looks into this man's heart and he sees that he has an idol that this man worships and that controls his life. 
and that is his own wealth. And so Jesus gives him the invitation, but, but he adds something to it. The same invitation we saw last week, that immediate invitation of follow me. We talked about the only criteria last week for answering this is an immediate answer of yes. But this time Jesus added something different to it. Jesus told him before this, well, go and sell your wealth and then follow me. So we're left with a question here, and this is something that has been argued in churches and, and misunderstood of the Bible for a very long time, is, is Jesus teaching this man to buy his salvation with works? Is he teaching him to give up everything and that only by giving up everything, only by selling what you have, can you be saved? And then secretly, a few of us in here are questioning this. Does Jesus call me to buy my salvation? And the answer to both of those questions is, is no. That's not what Jesus is saying. You notice what Jesus says to him. He says, if you want to be perfect, you've got an idol in your life, you've got a problem that keeps you from being perfect, along with, I'm sure, many, many others. If you want to be perfect, you've got to get rid of your idol because you've broken the commandment of having other gods before God. And this, this man, this man is faced with this challenge of how do I earn my salvation and be perfect, an unachievable goal. I hate to tell you, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect either. That, that's the whole point of what we do here. None of us can be perfect. None of us can be close to perfect. And so there's two things here, two lessons that we can learn from what Jesus shows this man. Is Number one is that you can't be perfect. Even if, even if your actions are perfect, even if you follow the rules, even if other people don't know that you break the rules, Jesus isn't interested in just your actions. He's into, interested in the perfection of your heart. But a second calling here is, it shows us what Jesus says when he says, follow me. It's radical devotion. Radical devotion to Christ. Radical devotion to his cause. See, for this man, selling wealth was an opportunity to give himself completely to Christ, to get rid of those idols, to repent of sin in his life. And so Jesus' invitation here is put me first. Put me first and follow me. And that is the calling of salvation, is to put Christ first in everything. There's two mistakes that people make about the scripture when it comes to this, this concept of this man being told by Jesus because Jesus Christ said these words, said, sell everything and follow me. The first mistake people made is they think that this is a blanket command to all believers, that you can only be saved if you are, number one, started out poor or if you sell everything. And some people believe this is what Jesus meant to be a follower, is that you have to be able to sell everything and to live a life of poverty. There, there are people all over the world that are trying to earn their salvation by following this code of feeling like they have to be poor to be a Christian. But the second mistake that people make with this is that this command applies to nobody. A lot of us may have felt some relief when you hear this scripture and you think, okay, well, well, what does that mean? Does it mean that the Bible teaches we have to sell all of our stuff? Do I have to sell my house and all of those things to be saved? And the answer is no to that. And some of us in here, myself included, there's a sigh of relief when we realize that. Whew, good, that's not what Jesus is asking me to do. But the truth is, is that for some Christians, because we are called to radically follow him anywhere, for some of us, he does call us to do that. For some Christians, for missionaries, he calls them to sell everything that you own 
and follow him in ministry or follow him as a missionary or follow him by giving to the needy. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves here is would you sell everything that you have to follow Christ? If the Holy Spirit convicted you in the middle of this scripture, you need to sell your car and your truck and your house and your land and everything that you have and you need to move to Guyana or to Thailand or to Ethiopia and you need to be a missionary there and use that money from the, the sale of your stuff to, to fund this ministry, would you be willing to go? And if your answer to that is a little anxiety and it scares you a little bit to think that that's a possibility when it comes to following God, I, I want to tell you that Jesus has just revealed an idol in your heart. Let's say our heart, because that, that scares me. Jesus reveals this idol and identifies us with this rich young ruler is that we have things in our life that may draw us away from God. So there's two responses when Jesus calls us to follow him. There's two responses when a follower of Jesus is called to sacrifice something. Number one is you can walk away from that calling. You can hide from God's calling. You, you can walk away and say, I, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna give my life to him that way. I was baptized, that was good enough. Maybe I'll get into heaven. I'm not gonna follow Christ everywhere. I'm not gonna surrender all. I'm not gonna sell my things if he calls me to. I'm not gonna give up my friends. I'm not gonna give up the things that I don't wanna give up. There's, there's that option. That's not following Christ. The second option is surrender to whatever God calls you to. It, it wasn't easy for me when God called me to be a pastor. I fought that for a long time, and I'm ashamed of that now, but I'll, I'll tell you, I really fought that for a long time. <laughs> God, I'm not doing that. What if I have to work at a church and I, I don't make a lot of money? God, well, uh, what if you decide to take me away from my family and from my home? God, what if you do that? I'm not doing that. I'm not surrendering that to you. But following Christ means that we surrender everything and we walk into this place willing to surrender everything, not to earn our salvation, but because we love him and we value what he gives us more than what the world gives us. This rich young ruler, he says it walks away and he says that he was sad. And, and the reason he was sad is he, he wanted to follow Christ. He wanted to go with Jesus. He wanted eternal life, but that draw of his wealth and his position and his title, it was too much. And so he walks away and doesn't take Jesus' invitation. As Jesus turns back to his disciples, he begins to explain to them. He, he explains what just happened and he explains this. He says, it's, it's very hard for a rich man to enter heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come to know Christ because their heart is gonna to be too tied up. They're too busy worshiping themselves and worshiping their possessions. And I know what we're thinking here in Batesville, Arkansas. You're like, that's right. Good thing I'm not rich. I would challenge you to do some research on how people in other countries live if you and I think that we're not rich. We may not be rich compared to our neighbors or to the business owner down the street, but we, we live in a rich world. And Jesus calls us out here is that a stumbling block in truly following him and giving everything to him may be our wealth and it may be the things that we have. It may be things that we refuse to walk away from to follow Christ. And so the disciples, as always, they're learning, they exclaim, well, Jesus, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Who, who could possibly be good enough to be saved if that's what you're teaching? And Jesus says, with men, it is impossible. 
Just pause there for just a second. Be, be clear on what that word impossible means. It means no way, never, not under any circumstances. Is nobody can be saved. Nobody can of themselves break from their idols. Nobody can be perfect before God. Not me, not you, not the person sitting next to you. But I'm so thankful that he continues that statement because he then continues on and he says, with God, anything is possible. See, God has the power to change hearts. God has the power to rip away obstacles that are between us and him. And God has the power to save us without our own perfection. This, this whole story speaks of Jesus' grace for us, that nothing we can do can earn him, but that's okay and he's okay with that because he has a generous heart and he loves us. Our next take-home truth is this. Our perfection is unattainable, but God's perfection is available to us. Think of your faith this way. Your perfection is not required for God because his perfection is enough for you. That's, that's all it takes, and that's all that matters. Well, cue Peter. You guys know Peter, right? He's always gonna be just a little bit behind comprehending things, and, and to make it worse, he's got the loudest mouth of all of them. He's like, uh, you guys ever seen that movie Shrek? Peter's like donkey out of Shrek. Like He is just always gonna say something wrong. He's loud. He's gonna say the most inappropriate thing at the inappropriate time. And so Peter looks at Jesus after hearing all this, hearing rich men are gonna have problems because they've got these idols, and Peter goes, well, what about us? L look what I did. You said follow me, and I went immediately. I dropped my nets. I sold them later. I I've done all of this stuff. Jesus, I'm homeless for you. What do I get? I'm hungry today. You hadn't fed us yet. You know, that miracle with the fish would be nice right about now. Jesus, what do I get? Look at how good I've been. And the problem we see with Peter here, looking for something special, is that his heart's not right either. Jesus spends some time assuring Peter. He goes, okay, listen, anybody who leaves their families, anybody who gives up their wealth, anybody who goes on the road for my sake, anybody who follows me, they've got rewards in heaven. It's there, and you've got to think Peter is smiling big, like, yes, I'm going to be great. Everybody's going to want to be me when we get to heaven. I'm going to be awesome. But then Jesus drops this in verse 30. Jesus drops this in verse 30. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. Peter has such a great grasp of God. I'm sure that didn't confuse him at all. The riddle of scripture, this oxymoronic statement about, about God's love. Jesus assures him, there's rewards for you. It's gonna be amazing. Good things are gonna happen. But then he says, but it's not about being first and it's not about being last and it's not about doing the most. And Jesus goes ahead and, and he decides to work in Peter. He's going to kind of redo his understanding because Peter, or Peter has the same problem that the rich young ruler had. Peter's saying, what good thing have I done that gets me a reward? And Jesus isn't going to have that out of his followers. Listen to me carefully because Jesus may have said this to Peter, but he says it to us. Jesus is not going to have his followers walking around thinking about what good thing have I done Jesus isn't going to have his followers walking around thinking about what I get because I've done something for God. And Jesus tells this parable starting in the next chapter here. Starts with a, a landowner who maybe it's harvest time or it's time to plant in the fields, but he has this landowner and he, and he needs some help. 
So he goes down to the market and he looks for some extra laborers. This, this is uh, very prevalent in the Middle East at this time, and it actually works this way in America. I know in some big cities that if you have a job that you need done for a day, that, that people, handymen, will gather outside of Home Depot and you can just pull up and say, hey, how much for you to come lay mulch at my house? Or how much for you to come climb up on my roof and clean my gutters? And, and these people, they live their life day to day waiting outside of Home Depot for somebody to come hire them for just a day job. And then you go buy your stuff. I know I've had family members that have done that. Just that's, that's how they get their work done. They hire somebody for just a day. And that's how it worked at this time. Is there was a place in the market where people who didn't have a job, who didn't have steady employment, they would just sit around and wait. And everybody in this culture knew, if I need a worker today, if I need somebody to come work with me, then I can just go down there. And these, these people are just waiting to be hired. And so that's what this landowner does. Is he, he goes down and he, he says, hey guys, I, I want to hire y'all. Now this is important about the understanding of the scriptures is that day laborers, these people were the bottom rung of society back then, the very bottom. They were lower than slaves. Now we can't get into all the differences, but, but slavery in the Bible is not like American slavery, what we've been thinking of. Slaves could own possessions. Slaves would end up with a status in a household back in these times. Slaves had the ability to kind of work themselves into a better working condition. They at the very least had stability, but these day laborers that waited in the market whether or not they ate that day was determined on if somebody would hire them. They were the bottom rung of society, the poorest of the poor, just waiting. One day, maybe somebody will hire me and give me a day's wages. And so imagine their excitement when this landowner comes and he says, hey, all y'all looking for work? And they're all like, yes, all of us are looking for work. So he says, okay, all of y'all come on to my house. I've got work for you today. This is about six o'clock in the morning. I'll pay you a normal day's wages. And they're all excited and happy. We're going to make money. We're going to take care of our family today. We have a job for today. The landowner, landowner walks back by that place again about 9 o'clock, and there's a couple more people sitting there. And he says, hey, I hired everybody here a little bit earlier. Would you, would you like to come work for me too? Just the field's down there. Go, go get to work. And they're excited. And the same thing happens at 12 o'clock and at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And the work day's over at 6 is this, la this landowner hires these laborers to come work for him. And, and when he is ready, he decides to pay them. This is chapter 20, verses 9 through 12. Listen, listen to what happens. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, that's those that were hired at about 5 o'clock, they only worked one hour, they received every man a penny. Now let's just pause there for a second. Let me break this down. The word penny translated in this Bible is, it's not incorrect, but it's not what we think of. When this was translated, there was no American penny. So what the word out here actually means is a coin, specifically a denarius. A denarius derives its name from the word deca, ten. It was about the price of ten donkeys. And that was the normal day's wages for any day laborer is one denarius. Uh, think of it like a minimum wage, but on a daily rate. So it's not that he's just paying them a penny. I know that we read that and we think that's really low there. So here we go. Verse nine again. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a denarius. But when they first came, they supposed that they should have received more and they likewise received every man a denarius. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat all day. 
So here, here's what happens is, is this guy who owns the land, he, he lines all these guys up that's, that's working for him. He says, hey, if you worked for me today, get in line. Those of you who I hired latest, you go ahead and get in the front of the line. And, and the guy walks up there and he had waited at that market most of the day. And he walks up there, he had worked just an hour. Imagine his delight when that landowner pulls out a full day's wages and says, here you go, one hour. Now, you have to think about, culturally, Jesus knew what people would think, and it's the same thing we would think first. If you were that person who was hired at 6 a.m., what are you thinking? I'm about to get that money. He's paying him a whole day's wages for one hour's work, and to me, I'm doing the math. I worked like 12 hours, and that's 12 to now. That's 12 days' work he's gonna pay me for. But when the people who were hired first get up there, they receive the exact same pay that that, that last man hired does. How would you respond? Don't lie to me. I know how y'all would respond. You'd be mad. You'd be like, I can't believe him. He gives him as much money as he did us. Maybe if I had slept in this morning like Olivia, I would have still got paid for only an hour's work of work, uh, worth of work as well. And, and so they're grumbling and they're mad, just like you and I would have been. Now, it's just a side note here. As you look at it, it uses the word murmur or grumble. They're, they're talking to each other. You guys know what I'm talking about. I can't believe they did that. They got their little secret conversation going on over there, talking about, I would never work for him again. I can't believe he'd do this to us, that we'd work all day and get paid the same as a man who pays, or only worked an hour. And, and if you look at this, I think there's something biblically that we need to pull out here is the reason they were unhappy was not because of what they got paid. At the beginning of the day, they agreed to work for a day's wages, and they were excited to go to work. I get to work today. But it's only when they compare their blessings to somebody else's blessings that they get agitated and aggravated and grumble and murmur among each other. See, I think there's a truth about, or a truth in the Bible here about us is that when we compare ourselves to others or we compare what God has given us, that, that steals our joy and it kills our joy. There's a lot of grumbling going on in churches these days, isn't there? Why do they get to do that? I didn't want to, I wanted to do that. Why did they get that? Why, why did they do that for them and not for me? There's a lot of comparison in churches and it's a sin of pride. It's a, a sin of thinking we deserve things and it's a sin of comparison. Here's our next take on truth is that comparing your blessings to others is based in pride and will steal your joy. If you continue on in the story, Look at how the landowner, look at how he responds to these people who are grumbling and upset, upset because they've compared themselves. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a denarius? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto the last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own money? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. So this landowner that Jesus has made up to describe himself, he, he calls out to these people that are grumbling and going, if they get that, what do I get? And Jesus says, Jesus says to him, through this man, he says, what business is it of yours if I'm generous? And he defines this upside down, backwards, oxymoronic statement like this. It's not about what you can earn. It's about his generosity. We need to do away with the human concept of deserve. Here's an oxymoron for you. 
one that applies to our God is that our God loves to generously reward people. Those two words don't go together if you break them down by their definition. The word reward means that you are getting a prize for something that you've earned, for something that you did, but the word generous means that somebody is giving something to you that you did not deserve. Those two words do not match, but yet we serve a God who is a generous rewarder of you and me and all that follow him, and this is the essence of grace, is that God rewards us not because of what we did, but because it brings him joy and pleasure to reward us. Our last take-home truth is this, is that the essence of God's grace is he rewards according to to his pleasure. That's what grace is, is that he rewards because it brings him joy and it brings him happiness. So Jesus doesn't care what you've done. Jesus doesn't care if you're a deacon or how many Sunday schools you've taught or how much money you give to him. Jesus doesn't care how much you pray or how much you read the Bible. Let me take that back. He cares about all those things, but it doesn't determine how he treats you or how he feels about you. See, he's already given you more than you deserve, no matter how great you may think you may have been. Live if you want to hand up, head up this way. See, Jesus doesn't waste his time giving us what we deserve. He always gives us more. See, we didn't deserve for God himself to come in human form and die for us. We didn't deserve to be called by his name, to be called to be followers of Christ. We don't deserve each other. We don't deserve his blessings. But Christ finds joy and pleasure in giving that grace to us and in loving us. And this morning, if you're sitting here and you think that you've somehow accomplished something because you've done a job by coming to church or it's a responsibility of you to follow Christ, you've missed the point. You're like Peter and you're saying, what, what can I do? The point of what we do here is we serve God with praise and with humility because we know that no matter what we do or have done or will do, that Christ loves us and rewards us all generously. Trust me, you wouldn't want what you deserve.